open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Uh, there is a, um, who's in the, uh, somebody's got to go back in the sound room. There is a, uh, a, a, a perceived dimness about the room. I am not sure what it is. Why do I feel? I feel darkness, and I desire that someone would cure it for me. Thank you, my son. Please fix that. Um, I guess I better turn this thing on and uh, that, yes, that is it. Beautiful. Thank you, Bryce. You are handsome and blessed with many gifts. I'm also probably a little bit too loud. A little bit too loud. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let's turn in our Bibles to, uh, to Genesis chapter 25. Oh, I don't like me when I sound this loud. Um, we'll, we'll turn to Genesis chapter 25. This is a kind of a momentous text, even though it may not strike you as amazingly brilliant, because it is the, the end of our time uh, studying Abraham, uh, although he will come back up in our next study. And I think that our, our time dedicated to studying his life um, was worth it in the texts that we studied and will we'll continue to, uh, to pay dividends as we study the life of Jesus in a gospel. Um, so we're going to read Genesis chapter 25, and then we will pray, actually just a couple verses from 25, and we'll pray, and then we'll turn to the explanation of God's word. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 25, verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Luimim. That is not a popular name for an obvious reason. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, thankful in, in the way that uh, churches can be thankful when we complete a season in our life. In this case, a season in a text, a season in a theme. And so we have, we have worked through all the texts concerning Abraham in Genesis, uh, just as we worked through years prior uh, texts concerning the beginning. And so we're thankful to you for bringing us through this season. And as we come to the end, Father, 
uh, we pray that you would help us to consider and to make the most of this man's life. You chose him for a reason. He was the first for a reason. He was given this promises, this promise that, that you gave in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, for a reason. The promise that you would make him a great nation and you would bless him and make his name great and whoever cursed him, you would curse and whoever blessed him, you would bless and, and his offspring would be like the sand of the seashore and that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to consider his legacy and to consider his impact even though it may not be appreciated or seen by the world, even though it may not be apparent to us, we pray that you would instruct us. And Father, having received that instruction, help us to walk in the way of faith and help us to take courage from Abraham's life. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. It can be difficult to see the implications of a life at its end. If we judge a life purely on, on the terms of what has been accomplished at the end of the life, it, it may, be, may be difficult or may not be immediately apparent to see what had happened or what, what, what the life was worth. Uh, there was a painter who was considered uh, insane by the people around him. Uh, he never sold any paintings to anyone in his entire life. He was considered one who wasted an enormous amount of paint, whose technique was lame, whose use of color was odd, and whose manner of life was considered generally insane. The only person who apparently ever bought one of his paintings that we know of was his brother. And yet... By the time I reached college to study art in the 1990s, uh, Vincent van Gogh is considered one of the world's geniuses. Uh, you may not even know his paintings, but you have probably seen his sunflowers, or you've seen his, his picture of himself with a bandage wrapped around his head, or you've, you've seen uh, the, the painting of his room with that, that iconic orange bed on a, on a yellowish-orange floor, and just a, a beautiful, amazing set of works. He didn't play by the rules, and so he was not respected and esteemed. Uh, but once you have seen it and studied it and marveled at it, how can you forget a painting like The Starry Night? Uh, the, the, if, you've, if you've seen it for real, there's a, an enormous amount of, I've not seen it, I've seen pictures of it from different angles. You see the enormous amount of paint on the canvas that gives uh, gives body and life to the, to the swirling of the sky and the stars. And there's these, this lone house with a, a light on and a little blob of paint in there, which some people think is supposed to represent Vincent Van Gogh himself looking up at the starry host in the middle of the night that no one else is looking for. He's considered an absolute genius, and yet in his life was completely neglected. 
Uh, when we hear about Abraham in culture today, we generally hear that he is the father of the three great religions, those who lay claim to Abraham. Uh, Abraham is considered the father of Judaism, the, uh, the key figure laid hold of in the Old Testament for the basis of the faith Christianity uh, is, is built on uh, Abraham. They call them Abrahamic religions. And Islam, which comes along 700 years after Christianity, also lays hold of Abraham and, and, and finds its root in him. And yet, I think very many people uh, know little or nothing about his life or the implications of his life. I want to boil it down this morning to a couple of, of principles and actually just limit the, the impact of his life on us to a single verse from his life. Um, so I want to make some observations from the text about the life of Abraham and apply them to us and then, and then drive home one main point as we finish our time with Abraham and move into a, a new section of Scripture. Let's look at some observations from the text. The first observation is this. The man of faith in this passage, Abraham, the man who lived by faith, dies without receiving the promise in full. He dies without receiving the promise in full. And you might, and probably will as well. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says this about Abraham's life. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and building, builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, and here's the key, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Is the promised plan of God, God's promise to make a great nation of Abraham and to give him many descendants and to give them that land to bless the whole earth and all the nations through Abraham, is it completed when he dies? No. In fact, I would say by evaluation of promises, if you were to put all of the things in a column and say what was accomplished, you would find that very little is accomplished by the time that Abraham dies. He dies on the land and is buried in a field, the only thing that he owns, a place where he's buried. And he has received as an answer to the, to the promise, the fulfillment of the promise, that he was, his, his descendants would be as numerous as the, the stars in the sky. He has one child born in the line of Sarah. And yet, he lives by faith and counts himself 
blessed to live that way. And so, as we consider ourselves in our own lives, we need to answer the question, is the gospel worth it? We've been commissioned by Christ to take the gospel to all nations. The, the message that, that sin can be forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, that our sins can be, can be canceled out, that we can receive the righteousness of God and stand in the presence of God one day, completely and utterly righteous, free from sin, at peace with Him, and we have to receive that message message, believe it, and know that we've been called and commissioned to proclaim that message, and yet the work will not be complete when we die, most likely. It is likely, given the expectations and hopes of Christians down throughout the generations, that Wednesday will arrive and blood moon season will be over, you know, if you know anything about what the uh, televangelists are talking about, and, and that the next great antichrist will not be the antichrist, you know, that, that, that ushers in the end, and that what everybody's saying, it's going to be this day, it's going to be this day, 1844, 1944, whatever date is, is listed, 1994, whenever people say Jesus will return, it is likely he will not return at that time, but will return at his own time, in his own way, and we will have died. And will we count it worth it to be part of the advancement of the promise while not having received all of the promises in full? And yet, when we look at what is detailed in Scripture, we know so much more than Abraham. Here is a man who knew that he was supposed to move and to not leave the land and to trust by faith that God would do what he said. And he did that and he was blessed because of it. And yet we know so much more. We know uh, about the cross and the resurrection and we know about union with Christ and we know about our future in heaven and we know about our Father's attitude towards us and we know that he cares for us and we know that he counts us as righteous and all of these things that we know. And we have received those promises and we've received those benefits and blessings and we know of them and yet we do not have everything until we stand in God's presence in eternity. Is it worth it? I say it is. And yet, we'll be tested throughout our life to say, Jesus is enough. The gospel is good enough. What I have received is enough. And will we live like Abraham, like strangers and exiles on the earth, waiting for a heavenly city? That's the first observation, that the man of faith dies without receiving the promise in full. And you might and probably will too. The second observation is this, the man of faith dies having left a legacy for his son. And I want to transition into a third observation as we talk about this one. Uh, we see in this passage that Abraham makes preparations and plans for Isaac, the son of the promise, the one who ought to inherit the land and who, who is the one through whose line, through whose uh, descendants, the blessing, the Messiah will come. We see some of the legacy of Abraham's bad choices in this passage. Abraham had this unfortunate incident with Hagar. 
spurred on by Sarah's desire to have a child in, a, in an alternative and creative but ungodly way, and Ishmael caused problems, and so did Hagar within the family. I'm sure that the fruit of, of those choices, the consequences of that choice, impacted their marriage for the remainder of their days in some ways. Keturah also seems to have been around, perhaps in Abraham's lifetime. I consulted with a couple of different commentaries and with a few people I consider to be Hebrew scholars, and they couldn't tell me either way. So either Keturah was around or Sarah died, and then he married again. You can choose whichever way you like. But if she was around during Sarah's life, then he had many other children. And there was probably a legacy and impact from that as well. But what we see in this passage is that Abraham is faithful to leave a legacy for his child who is to inherit the promise. We see that Abraham loves his children. It says that he gave them gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward into the east country. He told his children, okay, you, I'm going to give you this inheritance and feel free to come back to the tents anytime and visit me on holidays and on weekends. But, but go and get involved in trade over here because there's an opportunity over here. Here's money to start your business. Take these these." flocks and take these herds and go set yourself up and leave this area for Isaac, the area of the land, the promised land. He was loyal to the things of God. He held fast to that covenant that God had made with him, that he was to receive this land and that his offspring were to live on it. And so he helped and planned and plotted and set things right for Isaac. But as we move from the idea that he left a legacy for his son, let's consider the fact that he dies with a legacy like each of ours. One of the surprising things working through this series was I kind of felt like uh, when I got to certain passages where Abraham sinned, you know, it would be understandable or there would be mitigating circumstances. There would have just been a moment of weakness. But but man, when he sins and, and says, this woman is my sister and she's taken by Pharaoh, when he sins with Hagar, when he repeats the same sin with Pharaoh, with Abimelech, though with less heinous consequences, he really bothers me. I am irritated and offended by Abraham. And yet, I believe that there are godly men and women who if they could peer into my heart, into my mind, and to see the the sins that so often beset and, and struggle, and to see the specific incidents and actions of sins against God in my life and the poor choices in the past, and, and who knows what, what poor choices there will be in those moments where I walk after the flesh and not after the Spirit, from which may God in His mercy spare me, how will they judge me? The man of faith dies with a legacy like each one of ours. Because there is sin evident in each and every one of our lives. But this is the good news about the life of Abraham. And this is what I want to zoom in on. This idea of his legacy being like ours. The point of Abraham's life is not his sterling moral character. That is not the point. And yet, so many children's books 
so many children's Bibles, so many children's story curriculum are built around the idea that Abraham did this, you ought to be like Abraham, setting Abraham up as the hero, setting up imitation of Abraham as the the key application and point. And I think that's missing the point. It's missing the, the main thrust of the passage. The point of Abraham's life in Scripture as, as inscripturated and preserved in Genesis is not his sterling moral character, but his trust. There's a very good reason why Abraham was chosen, why he was first, why he was featured as the one to be given the promise, the one who would have to live by faith in God with with zero information compared to what we have today, that he would live by faith in God, aware of his own failures, aware of his own sinfulness, not filled with a sense of his own goodness, and we would look at him and see the same things as well. And that God would be seen as the hero, and not Abraham that we would be able to identify with Abraham and say, yes, that man is like me, and I'm thankful for that God. Galatians 3, 7 begins to develop this point for us. It says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's those who put their faith and trust in the gospel who are the sons of Abraham, not those who practice the religion of the Jews. That's the point of Galatians chapter 3 verse 7. When the, when the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to see what John the Baptist was doing when he was administrating his baptism, the baptism where he was saying, repent, the time is at hand, you know, the kingdom of God is coming, make way the straight of, uh, make straight the way of the Lord, get ready because the gospel is coming, get ready. People went out to him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and he said, who told you, you brood of vipers to flee from the wrath to come? Who, who, who sent you here? Because what they were doing at that time was, was saying, if you follow the commands of God in the strict way that, that we have decided that they ought to be followed, if you, have, if you are seeking your righteousness in the way that, that, that we're telling you you ought to, then you can become right by doing the right things. If you're just good enough, God will accept you. And Abraham says, God's able for himself to find sons of Abraham. He can make them out of stones. Think about that idea of the the hardness of the the human heart. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to, to get some kind of blessing from John, but they were completely and utterly convinced of their own righteousness. Paul is attacking this idea, the idea that that there were people going out and telling others, you have to become Jews in order to become Christians. You've got to follow all of God's laws. You've got to be circumcised and live life perfectly. And then you can be a Christian. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. That's a completely other gospel, which is not any gospel at all. Know then, he says in verse 7, that it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, I'm pretty sure that's almost all of us. 99.9% of the people in this room are Gentiles. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Something would be given to them, the righteousness of Christ. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham needed this blessing too. Abraham dies with the same justification that we have, which we all need. He dies having received the same kind of righteousness that gets you and I to heaven. Not a righteousness earned by good deeds, but a righteousness that comes from outside, a righteousness which is perfectly equal to God's righteousness because it is his righteousness which is given to us by faith. Look at Romans chapter 4 verse 1. It says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? What did Abraham have? Our forefather according to the flesh. He's speaking to Jews there, so that's why he's calling him our forefather according to the flesh. I don't think I'm genetically related to Abraham. Verse 2 says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that is in contrast to what he's going to say in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Fast forward yourself to to Romans chapter 6. Verse 23, where God says the wages of sin is death, right? You and I, when we go to our job and we work, we rack up and accumulate time in the eyes of our employer, right? And that time is, is, is recorded. And then if, if our boss says to us, I am not going to pay you, I refuse to pay you, what we then do is we go to the judge and we say, how dare he? And we bring a copy of our hours which we've worked and we say, he should pay me. And the judge says, that's right. And he bangs the gavel. And you know what the judge does? The, the, the employer is then required to pay you your wages. And that's the way that wages work. That's the way that it works. What it says here is to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And what each and every one of us has earned by the way that we have lived and behaved according to the scriptures is death. Because we have worked as sinners and we have earned judgment for sin. But to the one who does not work, this is a focus back on Abraham again, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham believed God, the Bible says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you could get into a little blue box and go back in time and confront Abraham and say, you are a wretched person, you hypocrite. You are, you're, the, you're the father of our faith. Look at the, the way you lived and these, these sins that you committed. It's embarrassing the church. People look back and they say, look at the founder of you, of you look at the first man. Like, he's, he's, he's horrible. 
He would say, my lawless deeds have been forgiven by God who is gracious and merciful. Yes, my sins are real, but they are covered. The Lord is not counting my sins against me, and therefore I count myself as blessed. Let's let's zoom in on this idea, okay? What was Abraham's faith? Looking, look in your Bible, flip there if you're, if you're like uh, cool and you've got a paper Bible or if you're, you want to use technology, go there on your, we won't hear any flipping pages, but go there on your phone and look at Genesis chapter 15. Let's talk about Abraham's faith. I think this is the, the, the genius or the, the focus or the emphasis of his life for us today is that he simply believed and then he fought to maintain that belief, he walked in belief. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. It says, it came to him in a vision. The Lord says to him, fear not, Abram, Abram, I'm going to say Abraham because I'm tired of being confused by it. Say, Abraham, uh, fear not, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. Now just remember, Abraham has received this promise. He left the land and went down into Egypt and and bad things happened. He came back onto the land. He got in a quarrel with Lot. They separated from one another. Then Lot was taken captive by this this nation of of, uh, this army of five nations. And, And then uh, Lot or, or Abraham went to go rescue Lot, and then the king of Sodom tried to tried to come out and make an alliance with Abraham. And Abraham said, "No, I'm not going to be aligned with you because I'm not going to I'm not going to owe you anything. Everything that I've experienced comes from the Lord." And so he walks by faith and not by alliances with human beings. And it's at this moment that the word of the Lord comes to him in fullness and speaks to him. Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Don't fear. I'll protect you. God's responding and reacting in Abraham's life, giving him greater detail and greater revelation. You chose me, Abraham, not Sodom and the kings of the land. Psalm 1830 says that God is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Your reward will be very great. Jesus promises something similar to all his followers. Whoever will follow him by faith will be rewarded. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Your reward will be very great. And Abraham hears this promise as after having received others. He heard in Genesis 12, verse 2, I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. He heard in Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. And he heard in Genesis 13, 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also will be able to be counted. And Abraham's heard these things before. And God says, don't fear, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. And in faith and frustration, he asks these questions to God. He challenges God. Um, This is what it means to walk by faith. It's okay to ask questions. Abraham said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? 
For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. What he's saying here is what's gnawing at him in his soul. I'm old. I'm going to die. You've, you've given me this promise that my offspring will be great. But, but according to the way that this works, I've got to leave all of my property legally to this man Eliezer, who's not my son. He's not my offspring. He's, he's, he's my servant. You've not given me a child. What will you give me? You're going to give me a great reward. You're not giving me the thing that you promised. And then in verse 3, he challenges again. He says, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. He's, he's making a complaint. He's, he's lodging an accusation. What? What reward can you give me, God? You've given me everything. I've got riches and flocks and workers and reputation, and I can pass it on to no one. You can hear the agony. I have no heir, no child. All I have is legal, lawful transfer to this man, Eliezer. And so in the midst of his human crisis of despair, of his response of pain to the promises of God's word, this, this feeling of, of disappointment or betrayal, whatever it is, we see Abraham challenging God from a, a position of faith. He's not, he's not being nasty to God. He's seeking clarity amid the contrast between what God has promised and what he has experienced. Help me understand, Lord. Teach me. You'll recall that a man brought his child to Jesus and the, the child has had a demon in the, it's in him since childhood. Uh, he's, a, he's a young man probably now by this point and the, the demon throws him into the fire and into water trying to destroy him and, and the man in faith comes to Jesus' followers and says they'll be able to, to handle it and, and, and they are unable to drive the, the demon out. And so the man in exasperation says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if I can, if I, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father, hearing the rebuke and, and perhaps feeling the contrast between what's happening in front of him and what he had done, he had, he had thought, Jesus can heal him. And he brought the son, however long, on whatever journey to the disciples and said, heal him, and nothing happened. And now he's confronting Jesus and saying, help my child. And Jesus is bickering with him. He, he, he cries out in faith, I believe. Help my unbelief. I, I've, I've taken these steps now. Help me understand. Help me. Help me. In, in our affliction and in our moments of disconnect with what God is saying in the word, when we're, when we're singing something that's on the screen and feeling in our hearts, that's really not what I'm experiencing right now. Or when we on Sunday believe and then on Monday something happens that, that, that comes as a contrast to what we believed in, in church on Sunday or what we read in the Bible on Monday morning in devotions when there's conflict... We need to move from the strong emotions that we feel that we use to cover and insulate ourselves from God. The strong emotions like anger and rejection and, 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 
and just outright doubt of God. And we need to identify that what's under that is often a weaker emotion that we don't want to feel. Like hurt that things have not worked out the way that we thought. Or confusion that we were so sure this would go this way. Or disappointment of, of God. We had it all figured out what you were supposed to do in this situation. Why did you do this? Nobody likes to feel weak. Nobody likes to feel dependent on God. Nobody likes to feel like I mapped the plan out. I had it all worked out, God, and I just submitted it to you and I prayed 50 or 60 times about it or at least seven, you know, and and I brought it to you and then you blew it up on me. Why did you do that? No one likes to feel that way. But God wants us to depend on him. And so Abraham challenges the Lord, I believe, in a way that we should feel comfortable to. From a, from a place of faith-seeking clarity. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And so the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in response in Genesis 15, 4. He, he hears it. Have you ever had the experience out in nature somewhere? This is the only place I can, I, I really identify this, this feeling. Like, like somehow inside you are being moved. Something is happening. You are being impacted by the vastness of something. Like staring at Livingston Falls, at the sheer volume of water that's coming over. And you're like, I didn't believe there was that much water in the world. Like, how can it keep on coming? It just keeps going in the noise and the spray. Or standing on the little beach in Acadia Park in Maine. Uh, the, the beach, Nancy and I went there on our honeymoon. There's a beach that was covered just with little round rocks. And the, and the waves, as they would come in, would wash the rocks up. And they, you'd hear this noise of all these rocks rolling in and then the water would roll out. And then just a couple, like, nanoseconds, whatever, after the water would go, the rocks would realize that they're not supposed to be up there and they would roll back down. And it was like, this is bizarre and strange and huge and something is going on in your heart and soul. And I think that the deep, loud, clear voice of God shakes the man but not the earth at this moment he is moved by what comes next God says this man Eliezer this man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir Abraham at this point had written off the fact that he would be able to father a son, that Sarah would be able to mother a child. He'd not considered the possibility. He'd moved his timetable forward and he was now thinking, how do I, how do I get an heir? Because I am as good as dead, right? This body isn't producing any children. So what am I going to do? He had boxed the Lord in. In what way have you boxed the Lord in? And his word is speaking to you over and over from these pages and you're just by reflex saying, not true, not true, not true, not true. And silencing the voice of God speaking into your life. I can't. I don't know how. I don't know enough. I don't have the money. I'm not skilled. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too sinful. Whatever. 
What are you crossing out of the plan of God in your life through unbelief? And so God tells Abraham, well, it says he brought him outside and said, look up at heaven, Abraham. Look up at the, at the sky. This is it. You, you can go through these. I can go through these stages in my life of, of living in union where you could hardly see any stars and then living here, coming down here and going outside one night, taking the garbage out and looking up and being like, whoa, there's no street lights and, and the city lights from New York City just a few miles away aren't bouncing off of the cloud. You can see an enormous amount of stars up there. And then I went to Zambia where there's no light anywhere because there's hardly any electricity. And you look up and it's like, wow, look at all that. And God says, count all of them. Number them if you're able. And like it says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is what I read with Hank now, perhaps there was this long pause and he was like, okay, one, two, three, four, five. And he loses count and he's like, okay. Let me look up there. There's some bright stars. And then there's some blinking stars. And there's some red stars and some blue stars. And so he starts to think through all the different kinds of stars. And then he's like, look at that deep purple nebula thing. Those, those different spots. And is that, are those, what, are, what, are the, what is that larger object? He's looking and he starts to, he's like, okay, I'll count it this way. And how long did he spend thinking through a scheme for counting? There's so many. And then he says, I can't do it. I can't number them. And God says, so shall your offspring be. They will be like the sand on the seashore. Now, from Abraham's perspective, the sand on the seashore is Possibly a, in limited quantity. I don't know. Now that we know that like, there's a bottom to the ocean, you know, I don't know if there's sand all the way down there at the bottom of the ocean or if it's silt or rock or whatever. Who knows what's down there? Old ships you know, and, 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 and men in diving helmets and stuff. I don't know. What's down there? Anchors, you know, lost lunches. There's all kinds of junk that we've dropped. Is there sand down there? I don't know. But so, so God says like the sand of the seashore. And then, and then think about it. I mean, there's a lot of sand on the beach down at Assateague, but then if you were told to count all the dust on the earth, all the individual grains of dirt on the eastern shore, you'd be like, well, that's fatiguing. Because there's certainly a lot of them. And given what we know about astronomy now, imagine being asked to count the stars of heaven. Seemingly infinite number. That's how many offspring you're going to have, Abraham you would not be able to count them. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, and he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. He said, that's true. That, that word that you've spoken to me, I believe it. It will, it will happen just as you have said. And then the verse says, I think this is, this is the the center focus verse, I believe, of Abraham's life. That's the way Paul uses the New Testament. He believed the Lord and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. Yes, Lord, 
That's a lot of descendants. Wow, you're going to give me that many children? I believe you. And God counted it to him as righteousness. The nature of Abraham's faith is this. He personally believed in the Lord. It's not that he thought, like, I'm just going to go to church, and I'm going to give some money, and I'm going to, I'm going to punch my card and cover my bases, and then one day I'll get to heaven, and God will be like, who are you? And I'll be like, my name's Keith. I got my membership card. I was an ordained minister. I worked in the, and he's like, oh yeah, I know you. You said all those dumb things. You know, yeah, you did a bunch of good stuff. No one ever laughed at your jokes, you know? And, and then he'll be like, all right, you know? No, no, it's that, it's that Abraham believed God personally. You are my God and you're going to protect me and you're going to shield me and you're going to give all these, off, these offspring to me. There was this connection Biblical, real, true faith should have God as its goal and not just information, not just self-service. The idea that, that our lives are to be lived by the light and our hearts are to be warmed by the God who's a consuming fire. That's my fire and I stand near it because that's my God. I hold close to it. His faith was not only proper, personal, but it was propositional. He believed the specific word of the Lord. His response was, I trust you. I believe you. His faith wasn't just a fuzzy mess, like God is good and, and Jesus loves me um, and, and built on just some sing-songy theology, but it was informed by specific words of God. This land, these offspring, this is how many, and that's what he believed. Consider how much more word we have. How much more we understand. How much greater a level of blessing that we have. And we can know that God cares for us. Like the birds of the earth. We can know that not a single hair of our hair, head disconnects from our head without permission. And when I was a kid, that seemed like a whole lot when there were, what, like 40,000? But now that there's like 4,000, you know, it's like hair number 4,000 disconnecting. You know, I want to know that God's aware of that. And then he knows that that's leaving. Stop leaving me, hair. You know, it's like, hang on. God knows. My mom's never counted my hair. Nancy's never counted my hair. God knows us. He cares for us. The result of his faith is absolutely and utterly amazing. Though Abraham had sinned and would continue to sin and would fall into failure and walk by his flesh, God says, I am going to count to your credit not your sinful works which you have waged or, or earned wages of death with, but I am going to count to you righteousness because you believed. That's the good news of the gospel. Normally, when we come before God in judgment and we come to him and, and he will say, what good works do you have on your account? We will say, these are my works of righteousness. And God will say, your deeds done in wickedness far outnumber anything that you did in goodness. And also anything that you did that you thought was good is tainted by your sinfulness. All your righteousness is like filthy rags. You have nothing. What does it take to be acquitted before the God of heaven? It takes absolute, complete, and utter righteousness. But here, 
the right response to God's self-revelation to Abraham earns righteousness. It counts as righteousness. This is the, the doctrine of justification by faith, that by faith in God's work, we are justified. Faith is not some crowning merit, some work that, that, that makes us completely, utterly right, but a readiness to receive what God promises. God says, I will do this. This is who I am to you. And we say, I, I believe that. This is, what, this is what I did on the cross. I took all of your sins and wickedness and I put them on my son, Christ, and I put him to death because you deserve death. And he took your death, but he lived this perfectly righteous life which counts as, as righteous before me. And you can have that if you admit that you're a sinner and admit that you need righteousness. I do. I credit it to you. And all of Abraham's wicked actions are canceled out as God puts his infinite righteousness into Abraham's account. Faith is the readiness to receive what God promises as true. And that means that from Abraham until now, the foundation for life is not human behavior, but rather the gift of righteousness that comes from God. What an amazing blessing for us imperfect men and women who come before God and say, man, he's going to open up and, and settle accounts with me. I've got all these sins and all this wickedness, all these thoughts that I've thought in private that no one but God knows of. And now I fear it didn't affect me in my life that, 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 that God knew. But now when I go to judgment, my, my thoughts will count against me and all the actions that I've hidden will be revealed and all the things that I've done and apologized for over and over and over again. And the world is not received my apology and said, you're okay. But I go before God and I say, my account is empty of righteousness, but full of wickedness. And God will say, because you believed in Christ, I put his righteousness in your account. And that canceled out all of your wickedness. In my sight, you are righteous with the righteousness of Christ. Imperfect men and women being given the perfect righteousness of a perfect Savior by a gracious Father. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You can have that righteousness if you believe in Christ by faith. That's Abraham's legacy. Will you have it? Would you, would you be perfectly righteous before God? Believe by faith, and it's yours. This is a no-brainer, folks. If, if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, this is a get-out-of-jail-free card. But it's not just jail. You're not going there for three rounds like you do in Monopoly. It's eternity separated from God with nothing but pain and agony. And you can be let out for free by belief in Christ. And here's the thing, when, when we believe and life takes root and our hearts and minds are transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, and the change that God the Father is, is, is bringing to our heart, we will hate sin and we will run from it. Imperfect 
very flawed people made righteous by faith. That's the great and good work of God. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ and you have received his righteousness and you say, yes, yes, how does this apply to me? I'm not going to go through everything, but it directly applies to you. So many of us are living lives where we're like, is God really pleased with me? Is God really blessing me? Am I really right with God? How do I break through to greater blessings? How do I really live that, that wonderful, gracious life? I would say this. Ephesians 1.1 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. With every spiritual blessing. That means no calling up to heaven and saying, could you send down more of this? Because I don't have enough. We have all that we need. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ. You have it. So start believing it and living in it. You are righteous before God because of what Christ has done for you. So what happens next? I'm just going to read one verse of Matthew's gospel and we're going to pray. And, uh, and then we're going to sing and we're going to go. Um, because I want to move from studying Abraham to look at the son of Abraham. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we're going to look at the author and perfecter of our faith and, and see uh, how to live and walk in the promises and the goodness of God as we move forward in the next couple of months. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you together to worship you by hearing the word. And I pray that we would make commitments in our heart in this place this morning. I pray that if there are those who are here who have never put their faith and trust in Christ, who've never believed that they are a sinner and that they are in need of a savior and that they have not put their faith and trust in Jesus' death on their behalf, I pray that they would do so now before they even move from their seat. And that they would believe that you are good and kind and will forgive anything. And that you will give the gift of Christ's righteousness. I pray that they would believe now. And that they would put their faith and trust in Christ and then express that. Father, for the rest who have believed, I pray that you would help us to fight back against the attacks of the devil, the lies. And to resist the lies of the world. And to reject the lies of the flesh and to walk by the Spirit all of our days because of the fact that you have counted us righteous in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious and sweet name. Amen.